What up, guys? Welcome back to episode six of the Deskbound Therapy Podcast. Today, I'm talking with my good friend, Danny, everything from social media all the way to fitness mindset to achieve your goals. So he's going to go ahead and introduce himself and tell us how and why he got started on Instagram. Hey, yeah. Uh, thanks for having me, David. Um, pleasure to be here. So yeah, like I said, said my name's Danny. Um, so currently, I own the two social media platforms, uh, Top Gym Tips and Physiotrition. I'm currently taking a year out for my study of physiotherapy. I have two years left of my degree. Um, what sort of started me on Instagram was I'm a big fan of um, strength and muscle growth, particularly pertaining to you know freighter populations and the effects that strength training can have on them. And I sort of was you know studying for a set of exams before, and I was like, "Geez, like I really wish there was something to keep me you know accountable to my studies." And I just found it really hard to study. And then I decided on you know creating this Instagram account and. You know, it was, wasn't for anyone else. And the reason behind it was literally just to keep me accountable for the studies. Uh, so I made a pact with myself to post every single day, something to do with physio, physiology, anatomy, something just to keep myself studying. Um, and also, apart from that, I was sort of sick of, you know, the amount of, I guess, BS I saw every single day on Instagram and so much stuff that I didn't agree with. Um, and I guess, like, you know, David, you, you probably agree with that as well. There's so much you know, bad stuff out there. So I wanted to have put a different spin on things. So, yeah, I guess, like, that's where my Instagram journey started. Like, I think it was, you know, April of 2017. So, you know, coming up on a year and nine months now. So it's been it's been a bit of a journey. Was your interest in uh, of strength training for fairly populations, did you have that before your interest in physiotherapy? Or is it something that sort of stemmed from your studies? Yeah, so beforehand, I never actually saw the benefits of strength training for a freighter population. So I would have always, you know, thought, oh, you know, when you're older, you shouldn't lift because, you know, you're, you can't move as much, you're stiff. But if anything, I found that strength training helps with those things and working in hospitals and on replacements, I saw the like the benefits and the massive improvements. You know, sarcopenia, the loss of muscle mass with aging is a massive thing we see in older populations. And it has a massive effect on patients' quality of life. Uh, what I then started seeing the research was that, you know, when you apply strength training modalities to elderly populations, not only, you know, do they get stronger and do they increase their muscle mass, but from a psychological standpoint, their quality of life increases. So not only do they move better um, and they have less pain, but they also feel better. So, yeah, like for me, it was when I sort of, you know, got into the hospital setting of working with uh, older people that I saw the absolute like crazy benefits of strength training you can have. It's actually interesting because on the other aspect, you have people who are currently strength training and lifting heavy, for example, who I hear it all the time. They want to like, once they get older, not lift as heavy because they're afraid they're going to hurt themselves or it's going to be bad for their spine long-term, like after 40. But really like you can keep lifting long-term with just another one of those misconceptions. Yeah. And I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, scare, fear mongering. If you like look at videos of, I guess, you know, Ronnie Coleman, the bodybuilder, He's had, I think, a like, bilateral hip replacement, and that's a big turnoff to people. People think, oh, if you lift heavy weights, you're going to have to get your joints replaced. But what we tend to see is the people who are stronger tend to have a lower you know, likelihood of getting joint replacements. Um, so I think the main issue there would come down to, I guess, technique and load management. People train too heavy too often. They don't account for things like fatigue um, because realistically the only cause of injury is... Um, an increase like there's too much load on the joint or on the tissue and the joint or tissue just isn't used to it so for most people strength training is going to 
decrease the risk of joint problems in the long run, not increase it, which is, I guess, a misconception most people have. What are some strategies you've learned in school for uh, load and fatigue management? Yeah, so the biggest thing would be to sort of work out, I guess for most people, work out what your, like, I guess, your MRV is. And that, that can be difficult for some people. So MRV is maximal recoverable volume. And the way, the, the most practical way I can say of implementing this would be just train as hard as you can for a week or a few weeks until you start to see a plateau in your progress. Then what you'll normally find is you're overreaching. So that means the amount of volume you would have done in the previous week is probably the max you could do. So we want to try and avoid training at our MRV um, as much as possible. But there are times where it can be beneficial, but they should be followed up by something like a deload week. Because we have this thing called an SRA curve, it's a stimulus recovery adaptation. If we apply too much stimulus, uh, our recovery mightn't actually lead to a favorable adaptation. So the best implementation, as I said, is just sort of see where you're at and see how much you can recover from. If you find that you're too sore, like if you're fi- if you find yourself being sore, maybe, you know, more than three days after a workout, that's problematic, right? And um, so just test around with your volume. And then from there, just stay below that. Never, I don't really recommend training until failure. I always, I focus on an RPE-based model and I try and leave maybe, you know, two reps in reserve for most sets. Um, and you can see progress this long-term and you're never sort of pushing yourself too hard that um, you'll run into major injuries in the long run. Yeah, it can be pretty difficult for people to want to even take rest days. I know for me, when I started working out, I thought, oh, rest, I'm not going to get results. But really, when you look at the data and you look at the science, all, all the results is happening while you're resting and while you're recovering. Uh, the point is to come back stronger. And often you'll notice when, you, when you've been overreaching and you back off, like last week, I felt like I was overreaching. I trained maybe like six days last week of heavy lifting. This week, I, I kind of backed off, reduced the volume, and I feel a lot stronger. So it's really good to know the variables and not be afraid to back off because you really do feel a lot stronger when you take some time off. Exactly. And the whole point of the deload week is, is like people say, oh, I'm not training, therefore I'm going to get weaker. The whole point of the deload week is to make you stronger. So if you do want to get stronger, deload weeks should be, I, I think, a part of everyone's training. Like for, for me, I tend to put them in, you know, maybe every six to eight weeks. But all that is for me is it's not necessarily dropping the intensity. It's just dropping the volume by like 50%. So, you know, say I was doing um, like 225 on bench for five sets of five or six sets of five, let's say. For my deload week, I still be doing 225. I just do three sets of five. So you're still lifting at the same intensity. You're just giving yourself time to recover and in the long run that's going to lead to massive strength uh, strength increases which people don't see like they just think oh i have to work hard every single day and i think it's about working smarter not harder because i see everything in terms of you know a long-term game and not just you know um the next few months i see this as life and i i, I think that everybody should sort of if people start to look at training as a long jet from a longevity perspective you'll start seeing massive improvements and you might actually see well i think you'll definitely see better results what are some some um, things you can do to implement the deload? Like aside from doing it every six to eight weeks, you could do things like, for those who don't know, you could do things like uh, auto-regulating volume. So something like that is a good strategy. You can do kind of like if you're feeling like you're close to overreaching, you're feeling achy, you're just feeling weak. Like the importance of auto-regulating can't be overstated, but it can also be hard for beginners in the gym. So what would be some tips you have for people who are still kind of intermediate beginner to learn how to auto-regulate their training? Yeah, so with anyone I do work with, I try and implement an RPE-based model from the start, and I try and hammer home the fact that you need to be able to listen to your body. 
So if you if you implement a, a fairly decent you know explanation of an RP based model from the get go, you'll find people know are, are quite in tune with their body. Like I can give somebody a few years worth of um, lifting experience pertaining to like how their body feels in a matter of weeks if I just sort of tell them like people if you give somebody a weight and it's their first time in the gym and you get them it's a weight that's rough they can roughly lift for 10 reps and they get to maybe six reps and they stop you can tell straight away that I'll, I'll, I'll often ask them how many reps do you think you have left in the tank a lot of them will say one or they might say no that's me to failure but you can tell by the concentric speed of that rep that they definitely you know it's probably an RP six or seven so i think first of all tuning people into the fact of um how to effectively listen to your body so for an intermediate i guess the best thing to do would be videos video yourself lifting and before looking at the video tell yourself how many reps you think you had left in the tank and then go and look at the bar speed and like it's something that you should notice straight away if you look at the speed of the first rep and the last rep you should be able to tell roughly how many reps you have left in the tank. So I think that's a very easy thing people can do. And then, yeah, like the, the, the best thing about an RP-based system is the fact that, you know, you never sort of find yourself hitting these plateaus because it's, it's all based on your perception on that given day, right? So, you know, you could be lifting 225. Like you can never, realistically, you should never have to change the structure of a workout with an RP-based system because it's all based on how you're feeling on that given day. So even let's say you went out and you went out, uh, went out partying or something, the next day you should technically still be able to do that workout. Maybe the intensity would be less, but it's still at a relative intensity of an RP of eight. So I, that's why I really love RP-based systems because you know you never have to actually change your programming. And the worst thing for people, what I find is taking, you know, lowering the weights on them like I find that so demoralizing for a lot of people. So say they were lifting like two twenty five last week and they fail on a rep. And I never want anyone to to fail because I think that can have such a psychologically negative uh, effect in the long run. Yeah, recently myself just switched to an RP based training system. I used to primarily just focus on increasing the weights by maybe five or ten percent a week, but I found you're right. The fatigue was very high there, and with the RP system, it's also good because you learn how to kind of gauge over time what you're capable of and also push yourself close to the failure or even a little bit less and be able to back off and still monitor your progress. For example, when I was doing my deadlifts last Friday, I pulled maybe 100, 100 kilograms, 255 pounds around there at around an RP9. And then yesterday, for example, on my deload week, I pulled um, two sets of 125 kg around 275 pounds at a much lower RP than the 255 was. So it just goes to show you how fast you can adapt and use these tools to monitor progress. Mm -hmm, exactly. And the the thing with, um, you know, a percentage-based increase, it doesn't take into account how you're feeling on the day. So you can have 12 weeks programmed and you're planning a session 12 weeks from now and you're supposed to hit a specific percentage increase, but you have no idea how you're going to feel on that day. There are way too many variables to account for. So an RPE-based system literally just assumes an RPE-based system just takes into account how you're feeling on that day. And that and that's big because there's things like you have to account for, like how was your sleep? How was your nutrition? Did you work the day before? Are you rested? There's so many variables. So this kind of puts it into a nutshell for you and helps you kind of track your progress in a systematic way. Exactly. Um, yeah, and as I said, you're just never going to really run into any plateaus if you, if you do that because it, it's just based on how you feel. And 
it's it's something that's so simple, but yet so off overlooked. You have to be able to listen to your body. If you don't want to run into injuries, you don't want to run into anything that's actually going to stop your progress in the long term, you have to learn how to listen to your body. So coming into listening to your body, what are some things you do for mobility training? Yeah, so for me, I guess mobility would be something that's outside of um, my strength training. Like My strength training would be my sole focus. I think mobility is often overlooked. Um, but at the same time, I think people make too much of a deal of it. But like mobility and strength are, are closely linked, right? So I guess I'd characterize brute strength as the amount of force that can be produced at a joint, whereas mobility is the amount of range that you can then control uh, a given joint. So for me in the past, studying physio, I was often told about the benefits of static stretching, foam rolling, um, other things like maybe um, like some self-myofascial release using like a, uh, like a lacrosse ball or something like that. I did see benefits, but I often found they were short term and nothing changed. You know, I'd, I'd always still be stiff in those areas. But then what I started to do was look at my training and be like, okay, do I really need to have, for example, you know, do a, let's say I was performing my main lift would be a bench squat and a deadlift, the, the three main compounds. Do I really need to have over 180 degrees, let's say, shoulder flexion to be able to do an efficient bench press? And the answer is no. So I was trying to gain strength in certain ranges that I actually that weren't functional personally for me. Now, I don't see any negative, um, I don't really see any negative sides to wanting to be more mobile. I, I think it, it's only beneficial because mobility uh, in and of itself implies that you're looking to control joint range, not just like this, the flexibility and mobility argument is like, if you're just trying to get flexible, to me, it means you just want a longer tissue length. It doesn't mean you actually have control over those areas. And what you find a lot of the time is people who are hypermobile tend to actually have increased um, levels of pain around the body because they don't own those areas. So what I started to do was just implement specific drills to the exercises I was trying to perform. And it may sound completely counterintuitive, but if I want to get a better bench press, well, then I'm going to have to bench press more. And people don't realize if you're, tra if you're training correctly using proper technique, your mobility is going to increase anyways outside of specific mobility drills. But then again, in terms of specific mobility drills, the one things I will do, I'll do some cars, so like controlled articular rotations of my shoulders um, and my hips pretty much every single day, just due to the fact that it will increase nutrition to the joint. And it's nice to take your joints to the end range every single day, at least once a day. Um, and as well as that, I'll do some Jefferson curls, just because I think a lot of the time, especially in the physio industry we're sort of you know told to not load spinal flexion but our body is meant to be loaded in spinal flexion it yes there is a higher risk of injury but i think to mitigate that risk you just have to get stronger in that position so yeah i do some jefferson curls every few days and then i do some cars for my hips and shoulders every single day and then outside of that it would just be training the movements either with using tempo or taking the range of motion slightly further than I'd actually need to. Um, so for example, a squat, I might actually squat a, like, you know, ass to grass as opposed to just below parallel. For, from a performance standpoint, I don't actually need to squat ass to grass. And then for example, for a deadlift, I might do a deficit deadlift, which again is training the same movement through a greater range of motion. And it will have a carryover to my deadlift, but I don't necessarily, you know, have to do that if my goal is just to get a stronger conventional deadlift. You make a really good point about um, people doing mobility for the wrong reasons, and people. I, I, I feel like a lot of that comes to 
there's so much hype around it. People don't understand what joints they need to load or what areas they need to improve on. It's kind of become like a buzzword. Oh, I need to work on mobility, but you really, really need to. I talk about this in my free ebook. Um, understand what range of motion and what you need to work on to get the best benefits of your mobility. You can't just kind of throw things left and right. You need to understand the purpose and the function. Otherwise, there's no real point to it. Like I myself used to be in that trap coming from from a gymnastics background. I had a lot of mobility. I just didn't, or I would say flexibility, and I didn't really have the control. And once I stopped gymnastics, I was always in constant like pain in my shoulders. Just because I had so much range, but I wasn't really pressing overhead anymore. And I didn't do things like horizontal pressing, like bench pressing. So it was just pretty much just doing handstands, a lot of balance work, but we didn't do much like controlled articular rotation stuff. So if you look at my current training compared to back then, I used to warm up maybe like half an hour of static stretching before any of my lifts or even my gymnastics training. Where now is I'll do 10 minutes of, for example, if I'm benching, I'll do some scapula push-ups. I'll do some banded dislocations. I'll do some back bends on the roller or my wrists and do just a tiny bit of rotator cuff warm up because I already have that range. And then you're feeling a lot better. It's right. As you do the warm up sets, you're going to be working your mobility. You can kind of move through the kinks as you're warming up. And I find it a much more effective way to kind of like constantly be assessing and reassessing as you're doing mobility and not just going through the range of motions is the biggest takeaway here. Definitely. And I also think that's a good point. Like you need to find what works for you as well. So for me personally, I, I did see short-term benefits to static stretching, but I just never saw anything that actually made any significant change. Now, if static stretching does work for you, go ahead and do it, but I really just don't see any big benefits to it. And also, like specificity is really overlooked when it comes to mobility. Like, why are you trying to get full range in this area? Like, let's say hips or not, but why are you trying to get full flexion? Do you, do you need, like, is that a prerequisite for an exercise you want to get better at? If it's not, maybe your best spent, you know, best uh, spending your time elsewhere so that's why for me like you know if if i want to get better at bench press i'll just load that position because loading that position means you own that position and that's ultimately what you know the most functional sense of mobility is for me because functionality is completely in the it's completely dependent on the person and it's completely individual so individualized so you know i might have you know a patient in with me who has very i guess very limited shoulder flexion but if they actually don't have any daily tasks that require them to get into full shoulder flexion, well, then why would I try and get them there? You know what I mean? I'd rather get them stronger in the range that they have now. And there's 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 a lot of evidence to suggest that, you know, the length of a tissue or the range of motion isn't very, isn't correlated or there's no causal link really between that and pain. And that strength is a very uh, protective um, way of dealing with pain. So I'd always focus on strength first, and I guess the two are then, as I said before, interlinked. But yeah, keep things specific and also find out what works for you. Because like I, I can say the research doesn't seem to suggest that you know self minor fast release actually works in the long run. But if you find that it works for you, then go do it because it's not going to be that detrimental. But please just don't spend like you know forty minutes, um, or whatever forty minutes flopping around on a foam roller. It's it's just not worth it. Your time could be spent elsewhere. That's a really good point. And again, those are to quickly recap, just making sure you're understanding what you're doing for your mobility. And if you aren't sure, ask for help. Both of our Instagram pages have lots of mobility stretches and exercises, specifically mine on desktop there, but there's a few we've, we've done together on top gym tips you can check out. So speaking more of top gym tips, why don't you tell us a little bit about your page and some, some kind of t- tips for success on social media? Yeah, I, I guess the idea for top gym tips started about this time last year. I actually, I think 
Uh, we started Top Gym Tips on the 16th of December. So pretty much a day to the year we started the account. And what I found was I just found great success, you know, posting on physiotrition. And what I then decided to do was I was like, okay, there's not many pages that are actually posting at a very high frequency. There just wasn't anybody at the time pushing the same frequency we were basically and being consistent with that. So I said, okay, look, to actually take reposts and repost them, it doesn't take that much time. So I got my friend Dylan in and I sat down and I said, look, I have a feeling if we stick to this and we're consistent, and that's the one thing I'd say to anybody, consistency is the main determining factor in success in any endeavor. It's a, it's a fundamental principle. I can see this page being big. You know, um, now I have no idea how we grew to 300,000 in a year. It's like, obviously I know, but I, I just couldn't envision that back then. But what I, you know, did want from the page was to A, be able to provide value to beginners. Um, I also thought the timing was very good for that because a lot of people we know started January, right? And then I just wanted to post, let's say four times a day. So then that happened. And then within one month, we had 10,000 followers. And within three months, we had 50,000 followers. And then I guess within now a year, we have 300 followers, 300,000 followers. And the rest is history, I guess. It, it just comes down to, like, for me, consistency. Um, but then other things, like in terms of growing your social media, you need to be able to get in front of the camera, speak to people. It's not something I push so much on top of gym tips because it's more of a brand as opposed to a it's more of a company as opposed to a personal brand, but you need to have, you know, um, you have to have a decent idea about what message you want to get out. So for us, it was helping beginners and we find most of our um, followers now are still sort of in that phase. You also need to have a decent phone. Like that's the biggest thing. Like I, I had, I had a very slow iPhone and I just couldn't post. So I invested in a decent phone, decent ca- like a phone with a camera to get the two in one. And yeah, you, you just, you just need to be consistent. Like that's the biggest thing people overlook. It's just like you will grow your Instagram account or your whatever social media or whatever endeavor you do will be successful if you just stick to it. If there's no, there's no real way to, you know, break that down any further. It's just like you need to have a vision and you just need to attack it daily. You need to post on Instagram. I'd recommend at least once a day. If you really want to push your growth, try three days. Um, three times per day for 30 days and you should see some growth. It's just consistency, to be honest with you, David. Yeah, I remember when I started out, I used to be a personal brand. It took a while to find my vision, but you have to also, one thing that stuck with me this day is my why and why I started it. For me, it was what advice do I wish I know when I started my fitness journey and I'm still sticking with that to this day. Everything I post is stuff that I wish I knew sooner that I'm trying to put out there so you guys can not make the same mistakes I made and learn from my successes. So. That's really what started it as a personal brand. It was calisthenics, bro, when I used to do gymnastics. Now it's desk mount therapy, and it's still all about just what do I wish I knew? Like, even the posting, you could ask me, like, if you ask me what am I going to post tomorrow, I don't really know. I'm just thinking, what advice did I learn today? What can I share with them tomorrow? And that's been the, the mindset since 2016. Mm-hmm, exactly. And the why, as you mentioned, there has to be a strong why, because if there's not a good enough reason to do something, we, to do anything, for that matter, we won't do it. So we need to give ourselves a strong reason to stick to something. So that should be the reason that when you want to fall off the wagon or you're telling yourself, nah, I don't have to do this today, that should be the reason that motivates you to go and do it. So for me, it's just to help as many people as possible. 
who were in the position that I was, like yourself. And what you find is people who have these followings, they just want to reach out to people who they think were themselves, you know, because I saw myself in that situation. There was so much information out there. I didn't know what to look for. So now I'm just trying to relay information that I agree with onto people. Um, and yeah, just hope to reach as many people as possible. And that's what keeps me motivated and keeps me driven to post consistently and stay on top of the social media aspect. There's so much more we can talk about social media. I think this is a good time to transition because you mentioned um, understanding your why. So I want to go a little bit into fitness mindset, especially as we approach the new year and just talk a little bit about building successful habits and setting realistic expectations. Yeah, so I guess the first thing, I, I have a very specific mindset that I, I've developed for myself over the past few years that I, I try and share with you know anyone I, I come across. And um, the first thing I do is, set down smart goals and it's something that's very simple it's something that everybody's come across but people just set goals that aren't measurable aren't realistic they don't put a time frame on it the one thing you'll hear the most of over um new year's or over january is i want to get fit or i want to lose a few pounds how can you take action on that if you don't actually if you can't actually define that goal so the biggest thing would be okay let's say you want to get fit well what does that mean what do you actually want to do? And what you'll find for most people is they want to lose a certain amount of body fat. Okay, let's make that measurable. Let's say you want to lose five pounds of fat. Okay, is that realistic? Yeah, that's fairly realistic for most people, depending on your starting point, obviously. And then put a time frame on that. So let's say let's say twelve weeks. For most people, that's that's so that's so achievable. But just actually doing that and just setting goals increases people's self-efficacy and increases the percentage chance of them actually completing that goal. I, I read something before that like just writing down a goal, just writing down the goal, nothing else, just writing it down increases your chance of completing that goal by something like 40%. And that, that, that's fascinating to me. Like it's, it's just like something so simple. It just means you're willing to take action. And then for me, I have this sort of like step, like four step process that I, I sort of, you know, uh, go through in my own head to keep myself accountable. Um, and it's, it's something I really, really enjoy. Like I've spent the last few years, like, I fine tuning it. And like this first step for me is to uh, apply Pareto's principle. So Vilfredo Pareto was a 19th century uh, economist from Italy. And he discovered one of the most, I, I think one of the most important things that we have in society right now. It's called the 80-20 principle. I'm sure you've heard of it before. But for me and how I apply it to people, it's probably the key to prioritizing what needs to be done and how to get there. And it focuses on, focuses on working smarter or working as smart and not as hard as possible. In simple terms, it just means that roughly 80% of all outputs come from 20% of inputs. It just means that a minority can control a majority. So, for example, think of like the richest 2% of people in the world. Combined, they probably own about 98% of the world's wealth. All that means is for you is, I guess, once you set goals, think maybe what are like the three biggest actions you can take to give you the best return on investment. So, like, for example, if you want to lose weight, the, probably the biggest three actions that will make up the majority of that goal would be stay in a calorie deficit, keep protein levels high, and track your weight consistently to see if it's, you're actually in a deficit, right? And obviously there are hundreds of in, intricacies to that. But if you start today and just attack those three goals, you'll already be on your way to success. And then something I do to sort of keep myself accountable is I attach emotion to goals. So like we were talking about earlier, you're, there has to be a why behind your goal. Otherwise, you're not really going to want to do it. And then what I do is, you know, so if someone comes to me and says they want to lose a few pounds or I'll sort of attack, attack, I'll sort of attack their struggles and say, okay, is it maybe because like, do you find yourself having low energy, blah, blah, blah. And then 
maybe if we attach a different goal, like you're doing this because you want to have more energy to play with your kids. And that's something that's very powerful. And that's something that actually gets people to stay accountable. And then on top of that, I write down my goals every single day in the morning and at nighttime. And I write them as if I've already completed them. And it's just a psychological thing that helps me stay on track. So if, for example, if I say I want to lose five pounds, I write that down as I have lost five pounds. And for me, that just sort of instills like a positive belief system and makes me feel as if I'm already there. And then I'll start to feel the emotions as if I'm already there without having accomplished the goal. And then like other things I do is I, I set some wagers for myself. So for example, if I don't do something, if I don't get a goal done, I will, you know, set like something that I don't want to do. So I remember before, like when I was like 17, I, I, I was like, I was growing my beard out for a long time. And uh, I was really proud of my beard. And I said, if I didn't bench like 225 for my 17th birthday, I'd shave it off. <laughs> and like, it's something really simple. But, you know, I did, I did, I didn't hit that. And so I shaved my beard. And it's not self punishment. It's just like, no, like, you know, it's to keep yourself accountable. And then, you know, after that, I just say, you know, the world's your oyster. Once you apply those steps, you, you start to realize that everything you think is what comes out in front of you. And I know it sounds very like, you know, wishy-washy, but it helps me stay focused that I know that if I apply emotion and I'm consistent that I will achieve pretty much anything I want to achieve. And I guess that's like my mindset summed up when it comes to anything I do, um, particularly training. Have you heard of that principle? You only have so many decisions you can make a day. That's kind of how I base. That's kind of how I base my nutrition. Like I don't track my macros every day. I I track it once, maybe a month, once a week, and I pretty much eat just the same thing every little every single day with some sort of rendition to it. And for me, it just I'm kind of like going through the motions, kind of eating the same thing. And for me, it makes it a lot easier to stay on target. Uh, I'm not a type of person to get bored with a certain food, so for me, that works well. There's a lot of other strategies that can work for some people, but for me, just the consistency is big for me. Just another decision I don't need to make. I know what I'm going to eat. I don't need to go to the gym and stress, oh, what am I going to eat next? I already know I'm going to go through the motions and it just works for me. Exactly. And, and, and instilling a routine is something that's so powerful because if something becomes a subroutine, you don't have to think about it. And as you said, you start, you don't feel stressed about it because you know it's going to happen. It, it's, it's like external to you. It's going to happen irregardless. So if you do set routines and set plans, you know, like as Jocko Willing says, like discipline equals freedom. People think that it's more difficult to follow a plan. Well, what you find when you follow a plan is that you'll actually have, you know, more freedom to do other things, you know, um, and more freedom to like, if you follow a, a nutrition plan, for example, there's no reason why you can't actually have the foods you enjoy once you control for calories. And people think that you have to be very rigid and you have to avoid all, you know, I guess like, I say this lightly, unhealthy foods, because I don't, I don't think any food in and of itself is unhealthy, but people often go with this, you know, um, I guess misconception that you have to stop eating all the foods you enjoy. But no, if you follow a plan and you account for that objectively, you can have all the foods you enjoy and still make a lot of progress. Yeah, it comes down to that 80-20 principle. If you're, if you're consistent most of the time, it's okay to eat out. You just have to understand the concepts of being reasonable, and delayed gratification when you eat out. And again, another strategy is having a little calorie buffer. So over time, you learn how to kind of self-monitor these things. Me, for example, I anticipate, I know I eat the same things most days, so I anticipate days like today, for example, it's Friday, I'm probably going to go out. So I'm gonna, again, today is my, my refeed and I'm using it strategically. 
not to binge on alcohol, but just to have a buffer to keep the stress low so I can drown myself out. And also making wise decisions. Yes, I might want to have some cake, but is it going to be worth it? How am I going to feel later? So I'm a really big fan of delayed gratification for reaching my goals. I, I want my goals more than I want to cheat, but I also want to live my life. So it's that, it's that fine balance that really everyone's working to attain. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I sort of promote flexible dieting for, for most people, because the, the general population are at such a stage where, you know, the standard American Western diet is so bad that if you come in with a complete opposite diet, people just won't adhere to it. But if you slowly take away things and instill gradual behavioral change, you'll see much greater benefits down the line. So the easiest hanging fruit, the lowest hanging fruit for most people is to take full calorie options. So like, for example, if somebody has like a can of Coke every day, that's about 130 calories, maybe 30, 40 grams of sugar. If they then just swap it out for a zero calorie option, they've already, you know, they get the same benefit from that food, but they're consuming less calories. So yeah, um, I definitely think that's probably the best way to go about it. I don't think, I don't think, you know, I don't think telling somebody, oh, you just need to, you know, move less and, oh, so you just need to move more, eat less is a way to go about it. You should slowly instill gradual behavioral change. And you're right, there, there needs to be, you need to realize there will be sacrifice though. A lot of people, you know, aren't willing to put in the work it takes to get their goals. As soon as they hit an obstacle, they stop. You need to realize that there is going to be sacrifices, but the sacrifices you make should be worth it because the goal at the end should make you feel happier than the sacrifices make you feel bad, I guess. Yeah, it's a really good point. It can be hard to kind of learn how to do this and implement these things. Mindset is really a hard thing. There's so much more we can talk about. We'll have to have you come back for episode 101 uh, for a little follow-up, and we'll talk about it for an hour about this stuff because it's just so fascinating. But one thing we'll do is we'll... We'll provide some resources in the write-up for this episode of the podcast. You can check out our pages. And again, thank you so much for being on the call today, Danny. Uh, tell them a little bit how they can find your pages if they don't already follow you. That way we can they can stay in touch with you. Sure. So yeah, as I mentioned earlier, Instagram is the place to find me, at Physiotrician and at Top Gym Tips. If you want to hit me up with a DM, I respond to every single DM with a video message. So you get a personalized response um, within a day or so. So they're the best two places to find me. But other than that, I guess, David, thanks very much for having me on the podcast. And yeah, as you said, I can't wait to be on again in the future. All right. Thanks so much, Scott, for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Deskbound Therapy Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes. And again, as always, deskboundtherapy.com.